welcome to True Crime IRL, true crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. You're listening to True Crime IRL. I'm Kelly Barron's Brink, and this is the story of the Hardy House murders. Kelly, welcome to the show. Today we're going to be talking about yet another Iowa unsolved case. This one is from 1910, so it kind of relates to the Velisca X murders in a roundabout way because both of these family annihilations were discussed in the book The Man from the Train by Bill James and Rachel McCarthy James. This is a father and daughter duo who wrote this amazing book, and it's one of the most well-researched books about what could have been a Midwest serial killer in the early 1900s. Your daughter helped you write this book. She did. And I want to quote from her in a previous interview. Okay. I think Dad's writing shown the most when he was talking about these small towns that he grew up in. I mean, his parents were born right around these years, and they grew up in the small town of, is it Mayetta? Mayetta. Mayetta, Kansas, the kind of place that the man from the train attacked. I hope readers will take away a greater sense of empathy for these tiny towns that are just as interesting, fascinating, and worthwhile as the largest city on earth. Now, today I'm not going to talk really very much about the Velisca axe murders, but if you want to hear more about that, you can go back to one of my earlier episodes in season one, and I actually stayed at the Velisca Axe Murder House with my good friend Lauren from Paradise After Dark. If you want to hear a recap on that whole thing, Lauren and I are going to be at CrimeCon next week, and we're going to be doing a live podcast taping on Saturday, April 30th at 2.30 p.m., all about the mysteries of the Velisca Axe Murder House. So I would love to see you guys there. And if you're going to CrimeCon, make sure you stop by the True Crime IRL booth to see me on Podcast Row. So hopefully I will see you guys there. Let's get into this story now, after a quick word from our sponsors. My name is Andrew Dodge. I've spent the last 11 years getting to know some of America's most infamous criminals, such as serial killers, spree killers, mass murderers, gangsters, mobsters, and many more criminals. Unforbidden Truth will bring you interviews with not only these individuals, but also mental health professionals, survivors of violent crime, 
and professionals in other fields related to crime. This is the only place you will hear the murderers tell their own stories from their own mouths, uncut, unraw, which is the unforbidden truth. It is a warm night, most often on a weekend. There is a very small town with a railroad track that runs through the town, or sometimes along the edge of it. You can't get more than a few hundred feet away from the railroad track and still be in the town. He is looking for a house with no dog. He would prefer a house on the edge of town, just isolated enough to provide a little bit of cover. A big two-story house would be best with a family of five, a barn where he can hide out from sundown until the middle of the night. But in that era, before the automobiles came, almost every house had a barn. Even the houses in Chicago and Philadelphia had barns. He is looking for a house with a woodpile and an axe sticking up out of the woodpile. Who is he? He is a serial murderer who lived uh, more than a hundred years ago, who is as terrible a human being as has ever walked the face of the earth. Do you know his name? I do know his name. Many small towns seem to just disappear as time goes on, and Iowa is no stranger to fading farm communities. Without some form of industry or reason that brings tourists or unexpected passers-by through the town, they almost seem to just fall off the map. Van Cleve, Iowa exists today, although barely, because of two reasons, agriculture and the railroad that once ran close to it. The town of Van Cleve was founded in the 1800s and it reached a peak population of 107 people in 1902. At that time, it was a stop on a railroad track that ran from Newburgh, Iowa to State Center, Iowa. However, the beginning of the end occurred in 1925 when that stretch of railroad was abandoned. And it's probably only the horrible events that occurred on June 5th, 1910, that will keep this unincorporated community in our history books. It was on that night that the brutal murder of three members of the Hardy family took place. A suspect was never officially charged in the murder, not that there aren't people in question, but this murder will most likely never get solved. We, there were a lot, an awful lot of crimes that at one point we thought might be related and ultimately decided had no connection to the story and didn't include in the book anywhere. There are probably 40 to 50 crimes which are discussed in the book. Some of those are relatively low probability of being linked and some of them are absolutely and unquestionably linked to the Velisca murders. 
So James, age 63, and his wife Mary, 57, along with their children Earl, who was 29, and Ray, who was 19, lived on a rented farm about four and a half miles south of Van Cleve, Iowa. They moved to that farm in 1901 from Mound Prairie Township in Jasper County, Iowa. 29-year-old Earl was described as handicapped, but he was able to participate in some tasks on the farm. His brother Ray was a strong and rugged young man and often did more than his fair share of the farm chores. This family was known for getting along very well, and they shared the farm work as best as they could. They were well-respected in the community for their hard work and for their ability to overcome the challenges that they faced at that time with a disabled child. In 1909, the family hired two neighbors who lived about four miles away from them. Mabel, 23, and her younger brother Chester, who was only 11, to help with the housework and the farm chores. Raymond Hardy noticed the family's new female helper, and these two took a liking to one another, and they were soon spending large amounts of time together. And with all that time they spent together, Mabel would soon become pregnant, and the two planned to marry on June 8, 1910, in Newton, Iowa. As the wedding approached, Mabel moved back into her parents' farm to prepare for the event. On the morning of Sunday, June 5, 1910, James and Ray were heading out to the barn where they discovered that one of their horses, Old Kit, was bridled and saddled and appeared ready to be taken somewhere. However, nobody in the family had done this. Obviously, this was a cause for concern, and horse thieves were common in those days. Ray and James decided that they should stay up that night watching over the farm in hopes of catching the perpetrator. After supper that night, Ray went to visit Mabel at her home, where he told her about what he and James had discovered that morning. He stayed until sometime after midnight, and then he headed back home to help his father, watch over the horses. Ray arrived back home around 1 a.m. and supposedly entered the two-story house via the west porch and went through the parlor into the dining room and struck a match to give himself some light. What he discovered was a horrifying scene. There was blood everywhere. The light from the flame revealed his mother slumped over, half on and half off the sofa, with blood soaking the fabric and pooling on the floor. Obviously taken aback by the shock of his discovery, he moved backwards towards the kitchen. His match would shed light on the north side of the home, where he found Earl on the floor next to the milk buckets he had been carrying back from the barn. Earl had also been bludgeoned in the head, and blood covered the walls on the floor. Raymond told authorities that he immediately went to the family telephone and sounded the general ring, which alerts every patron on the line to an emergency. 
first to respond was a neighbor of the Hardys named C.W. Preston, who lived two miles to the southwest. Estimates of his arrival time are around or shortly before 1.30 a.m. Raymond had called the county sheriff, A.A. Nicholson, who lived in Marshalltown, Iowa, 14 miles north of Van Cleve, and he arrived on the scene at around 4 a.m. with Deputy C.B. Newson. Between 1.30 a.m. and 4 a.m., other neighbors had shown up and discovered James in the barn, where he had also been beat to death with a 30-inch long leaded gas pipe. The gas pipe was discarded near James' body, which may indicate that he was the last to die in the event. The gas pipe had been sharpened on one end because it had been used to pry frozen manure off the ground. And yes, that is something that we do in Iowa. In the wintertime, poop never stops. And it freezes because everything freezes here. So, yeah. All three victims had been struck from behind on the right side of their heads. Allegedly, a bloody handprint was left on the wallpaper above the couch that Mary was killed on. The handprint faced down towards the floor. According to the Des Moines Daily News, the bloody couch was carried to the west side of the yard and the three bodies were wrapped in white shrouds and placed on death cots side by side in the parlor. Neighbors and friends filed through the house all morning to look at the victims and to kind of gawk at the scene of the crime. This was common back then. And if you know anything about the Velisca Axe murder, man, this story sounds almost identical so far. The title, The Man from the Train, uh, what's that come from? The, uh, one of the things that identifies the um, murder we're talking about is that most, many of the crimes uh, happen within 100 yards of the railroad track. Uh, and one of the things that helps us identify his crime as opposed to somebody else's is that it usually happens at the intersection of two railroad tracks. Uh, the, uh, and it's at the intersection of two railroad tracks, presumably because he knew he had to get out. Well, after he committed his crime, he had to get out of town before dawn. And he didn't want to be stranded there waiting for a train to come through that he could hop on. So being at the intersection of multiple railroad tracks gave him the op more opportunities to get out of town before the crime was discovered. Since Ray was the first on the scene and the first to report the gruesome incident, he was put under suspicion that he may have been the killer. It was determined that the killer was familiar with the layout of the barn and of the property. The sequence of events most likely happened before sunset at 8.45 p.m., as neither James nor Earl had any form of light with them while they were out doing evening chores. Mary was most likely killed first, followed by Earl, and then James. 
all of them were caught by surprise and beaten to death brutally. The murders were speculated to be planned and thought through very well, and that this was not a crime of passion as far as they could tell. And ironically, robbery was also ruled out as the family was not wealthy, and both James and Earl had money in their pockets. However, Ray was found with $35, which at the time would be about six weeks worth of wages. James had even more money on him. That's a lot of money for a quote-unquote poor family at that time. Ray's overalls and hat were found hidden and both covered with blood, which he claimed was from butchering chickens earlier that week. There was a note found inside the house, but later was determined to be forged, and it was signed by someone claiming to be James and also Earl. The note stated that the two of them were giving Raymond $1,000 Ray said that this note was all written as a joke between them earlier in the week. But these details put Ray in the crosshairs of the investigation. A warrant was issued for his arrest and Sheriff Nicholson took him into custody mid-morning on June 6th. As Raymond was questioned, he remained calm and composed. He displayed only grief at the loss of his family and never veered from his account of the night of the murder. He admitted to having very little money to start his life with Mabel after their wedding, but he remained firm in the fact that he did not kill his family. His explanations regarding the bloody clothing remained consistent as well. He explained that he hid his bloody clothing in fear that he'd be suspected of these heinous crimes. His story, however, gets sketchy when his hat, which he wore to visit Mabel, was found also with blood on it. He stated that he hung his hat over the couch where he found his mother, but there was no hook there for a hat to be hanging. He speculated that maybe he just placed it on the couch and that it possibly fell off and landed in the pool of blood on the floor. Mabel testified that the hat had no blood on it when he was there visiting her, but when authorities found the hat later, it had blood on it. Ray would say that he took the hat off near his mother when he found her body and that it must have fallen into the blood pool, but his story was a little sketchy. Sheriff Nicholson maintained that he had a case against Raymond. However, his version of motive changed several times, First, it was because the families had opposed the marriage of Ray and Mabel. However, the families were known to be relatively close, and Mabel testified that Mrs. Hardy never expressed opposition to their marriage and, in fact, promised half the family chickens to the two after they got married. That was a big deal. How many chickens do you have? Oh, I have 500. Great, let's get married. The sheriff also asserted that Raymond and his family often quarreled over chores. But that wasn't true. Everyone in town would attest to the fact that they got along very well. Sheriff Nicholson also accused Raymond of killing his family to inherit the family's possessions, including livestock, machinery, 
household goods, and things like that that would be necessary for starting his family with Mabel in a home other than the Hardys' rented home that had just been the scene of a triple homicide. The following week on June 8th, the day that Ray and Mabel had planned to get married, they held a funeral instead for the Hardy family at their home. Raymond was in attendance accompanied by Marshall County Sheriff's deputies. After the funeral, it was right back to jail for Ray. And he attempted suicide by hitting his head against the jail cell wall, but he was only able to break his nose. By this time, media in Iowa had all but placed the guilt on Raymond and proclaimed that evidence was mounting against the young man. But on June 10th, the coroner's jury ruled they were unable to find sufficient evidence to continue to hold Raymond Hardy, and therefore they released him. A main source of this lack of evidence was that the bloody handprint from the wallpaper provided insufficient ridge detail for fingerprints to be used. Within days, the crime scene had been scrubbed clean and the blood was washed off along with every bit of evidence that went along with it. About this time, news had spread to communities beyond Van Cleve, Iowa, and people had another story to tell. A man named Frank Wickersham from Luray, Iowa, reported that on the morning of June 6th, he was riding the train north towards Marshalltown, Iowa. Two men that nobody knew or spoke to climbed into the train. One had blood on his coat that several other passengers would corroborate. However, since nobody knew of the murders at that time the night before, there was no effort to apprehend or identify this man who proceeded north when Wickersham disembarked the train in Luray. Raymond had returned to the house, boxed up his belongings, and moved in with Mabel's family. Crops had already been planted, so he and Mabel's brother would tend to those. By the end of June, the reward for apprehension of the Hardy family murderer climbed to $885 through town donations. Since Ray was only 19, he wasn't legally able to marry Mabel. Oh my gosh, that rhymed. So L.J. Jason of Van Cleve stepped up to the plate and became Ray's legal guardian. So Raymond and Mabel finally married in Newton, Iowa in August 1910. On September 12th, the Hardy family possessions were auctioned off and brought a larger than usual sum of money due to the infamous nature of the crime. It's basically like the early 1900s version of murderbilia. People wanted pieces of these crime scenes and they were actually obsessed with true crime back then, and they would pay a lot of money to take souvenirs away from a gory crime. Neighbors pressed for a grand jury investigation of the murders, but officials deemed that would be a waste of money as no new evidence had presented itself. Mabel 
Mabel and Ray Hardy welcomed their new baby boy in October 1910, and shortly after that, they moved to Minnesota where they had three more children, Hazel, Myrtle, and Orville. Mabel's family followed them to Minnesota from Iowa. The family lived out the rest of their days farming in Minnesota in Johnsonville Township near Lacone. Mabel Starnes Hardy passed away in 1951, and Ray passed away in May of 1969. The house where the murders took place, much like the Velisca Axe murder house, is still standing and continues to be occupied. James, Mary, and Earl Hardy remain buried side by side in a cemetery in Colfax, Iowa. Their murders have never been solved. So guys, who do you think killed the Hardy family? Do you think it was Ray? Or do you think it was one of the Midwest's first serial killers? There are so many similarities between this and the Velisca Axe murders and a lot of other bludgeoning deaths that occurred in the early 1900s in the Midwest. If you want to hear more about these cases and a few others, you should read the book, The Man from the Train. It's so good. It's one of the best books on this subject. And another one you should read is written by Troy Taylor, one of my favorite podcasters. It's called Murdered in Their Beds, and it's all about the Velisca Axe murder and how that murder might be tied to several other gruesome murders in the early 1900s. Troy Taylor is the host of American Hauntings podcast, and he writes a lot of historical, and paranormal stories. There are a lot of books, a lot of documentaries you can watch on this subject. And again, Lauren from Paradise After Dark and I will be talking about the Velisca Axe murder at CrimeCon 2022 in Las Vegas. It's my opinion that the person who murdered the Moore family and the Stillinger daughters is the same person who murdered the Hardy family. Even back in the early 1900s, people should lock their doors. And you should lock your doors, everyone. Until next time, lock your doors. Just lock them. Lock your windows. Lock your everything. Just lock everything. Everything. I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye. Just lock your doors. Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. 
please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash truecrimeirlpodcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at truecrimeirl, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 